Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome to New Books in East Asia. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just had the pleasure of talking with Peter Moak, a lecturer of history in the School of Humanities and Languages at the University of Western Sydney. Peter just published a book called Sailor Diplomat, Nomura Kichisaburo in the Japanese-American War that just came out with Harvard University Asia Center in 2011. Um, Now, it was a really fascinating discussion of an equally fascinating book, that takes the case study of this individual who was the ambassador um, to the U.S. in the years leading up to the Pearl Harbor attack um, and really reads a whole history of transnational and global politics through um, the history of this one individual. Um, it's a book that's not only fascinating for scholars and students and um, sort of aficionados and those interested in Japanese history or modern U.S. history or transnational history. It's also a, um, a really instructive model for how to do world history through the case and through the life of a single individual. So anyone interested in biography um, as a historian's craft and as a craft of storytelling will also get a lot out of this book. Hello, Peter. Hi, Carla. How are you? Great. Um, thanks so much for being with us today. We're here. Oh, it's, it's uh, completely my pleasure. So we're here to talk with Peter Moak about his recent book, Sailor Diplomat, Nomura Kichisaburo and the Japanese-American War. And that just came out um, in 2011 with the Harvard University Asia Center. This book is an exhaustively researched and extraordinarily rich biographical account of the man who was Jap- Japan's ambassador to the U.S. in the years leading up to the Pearl Harbor attack and actually through um, through that event as well. It also um, is just a wonderful read and really represents presents uh, what I thought was a fascinating way to tell a very rich global and transnational history uh, through one man's experience. So um, I'm very much looking forward to talking with you today about it. Thank you. Oh, of course. Um, Peter, could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself? Yes, uh, I'm an Australian citizen and hence the accent. Uh, (laughs) I uh, only reasonably recently moved back to Australia. Now I'm in Sydney. Uh, for 10 years prior to that, I was living in Kyoto in Japan. Uh-huh. Uh, so I guess my time in Japan was the, the period in which I wrote uh, this book. Sure. Great. So what brought you to Japan? Essentially, my studies. Uh, I went to Japan as a – initially, I went as a uh, postgraduate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I completed my PhD at uh, Kyoto University. Mm-hmm. I had two years after that remaining at uh, Kyoto University as a postdoctoral fellow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for roughly five years after that, I was teaching at uh, Mitsumeikan University, which is a private university, um, not very far down the way from uh, Kyoto University, in fact. Mm-hmm. Great. So how did, what brought you to this project in particular? I guess in the end, this is an extension of my, um, uh, my PhD thesis mm-hmm. uh, or, or a significantly revised version of my PhD thesis, perhaps, 
Uh, so I guess in that sense, uh, what brought me to this project, uh, perhaps the blame there lies with my uh, grad level advisor, uh, Joseph Suryakusa. <laughs> okay. He insisted that I pick something big. Uh, so when he was talking big, uh, he was thinking, of course, in terms of something like Pearl Harbor, uh, perhaps the atomic attacks, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps the occupation. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, I guess in the end, I ran with Pearl Harbor. Right. Right. So you work, um, before we actually get into the content of the book and this really interesting story, um, that you give us, um, you worked a lot in this book, or it seems at least from, um, reading it and looking at your sources that you worked a lot with naval and diplomatic archives in researching Mm -hmm. the book. So for listeners who might be interested in using those sources or who may not have had the experience of using those sources, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, what the research process was like for you? The research process uh, was perhaps a little tiring at times. Uh, the Japanese military archives, uh, some people, someone has likened it to um, searching for a needle in a haystack when you're not even really sure if the needle is in fact in the haystack. Uh, and I think that's a pretty good summation of what things are like in the uh, military archives. Foreign ministry archives are much what was significantly easier to use than that. Uh, I might also add that on the uh, topic of uh, uh, sources, I was uh, lucky enough to gain access to the Admiral's papers. Right. Uh, the, his surviving family uh, were very gracious and uh, gave me basically carte blanche for 12 months. Uh, I had complete and unhindered access to everything that he had left behind. Uh, those papers now are stored in Japan's National Diet Library, which is perhaps, say, Japan's answer to Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what was it like working with those personal papers? That was fun. Um, that was a lot of fun. I think I became very, very good at reading his handwriting, <laughs> uh, aside from anything else. Um, but, of course, I think being able to access his papers hopefully allowed me to get much or, or, or uh, to arrive at a much greater empathy with this particular figure than otherwise might have been the case. So uh, certainly that was a great, uh, a great experience and, and uh, uh, perhaps something that I'd like to think I might be able to do again with a different figure, but I'm not really sure if that will prove possible. Mm-hmm. And was there anything about um, these personal papers or any sort of nuggets in there that really excited you or surprised you when you saw them? Yes. Yes. Entirely. Entirely. Um, uh, there were indeed nuggets. Um, Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much detail I ought to go into here, but uh, certainly uh, at least a couple, at least a couple of memoranda which uh, uh, forced a major rethink of the negotiations uh, leading up to Pearl Harbor, uh-huh. uh, in which, of course, he was involved as ambassador. Uh, nuggets which uh, essentially revealed the Japanese Navy's involvement in those negotiations, which hitherto uh, we that nobody knew about. So it, uh, it certainly has opened or, or forced us to rethink and uh, essentially recreate the historical landscape around those negotiations leading up to Pearl Harbor. Right. Right. And it's, um, and as we get into the, um, the meat and potatoes of the book, um, it's, I think that really becomes apparent in here. So 
It's really exciting stuff. Now, this is the story of a man. I mean, it's the story of much more than that. But you, um, the book itself is written in a in a very biographical mode, um, which makes sense given the topic. Um, mm-hmm. But can you uh, talk a little bit about how you decided to write in that mode? Because it's not necessarily the case that that would be you know the first thing um, that struck you in writing a, a history of this event. So how did you come to the biographical mode in particular as your mm-hmm. way into this? Okay. Um, like I said before, I I think my, my starting point essentially was uh, Pearl Harbor, uh-huh. uh, and of which necessarily led me to the uh, negotiations leading up to Pearl Harbor. Uh, of course, he was Japan's ambassador uh, in Washington in those or during those negotiations. Uh, so he provided, in that sense, he provided a, a nice focal point for these negotiations. Uh, it also allowed me to obviously use uh, whatever language, Japanese language capacity I do have. It allowed me to use that uh, in a way that, um, or and to uh, bring his mindset and his thoughts to an audience which otherwise might not be able to read what he thought, what he was saying at the time. Uh, the the fact that I moved from there to a biography, I think, um, I think it became increasingly apparent to me as I studied his time as ambassador that this was uh, clearly. We only have to think about this in, a, in the most simple terms. When he was ambassador, he was already in his 60s, and I, I'm assuming that a man in his 60s already has some rather definite ideas about how things work and uh, uh, Japan's place in the world and Japan's relations with the United States and so on. So it seemed to me more and more that as I looked at his time in the U.S., it was as ambassador, it was necessary to look back to his uh, career before his uh, ambassadorial efforts to get a real and proper understanding of his time as ambassador, which, of course, put me back into his uh, naval career. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also fascinating in the post-war period because, of course, he uh, participated in uh, Japan's rearmament process. And this being the case, it, it increasingly became apparent to me that um, uh, essentially biography was the way to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's actually get into it then. I mean, we've been sort of talking about this uh, major character of the book. This is Nomura. Is, am I saying that correctly? Yep, that sounds good. Nomura? Okay. <laughs> so the book itself actually traces um, this kind of amazing um, series of really transnational events through um, the course of his life. And it starts with at the beginning of the book, um, an account of his early years, so his education and his family um, and his career as a very young naval officer. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, about that as a way to introduce him to our listeners? Okay. Um, I, I enjoyed uh, the, the early, his early years, mm-hmm. partly because I'm, I'm not sure if you remember, but there's one story in there where evidently he liked to fight as a kid. He used to wrestle and beat up other kids or whatever. And there was one story in there where he, Obviously, in, in the course of one fight, one of the kids has picked up his uh, shoe and thrown it into the uh, <laughs> river. And he, so he goes home with only one shoe and gets himself in all sorts of trouble with his mum and dad, uh, largely because they, they had no money and could not afford to uh, uh, buy him a new pair of shoes. And that kind of, uh, that alone endeared me to this guy, which perhaps in its own way is a little bit of a concern because you've got to try to keep some kind of distance. But um, mm-hmm. that particular episode, that that... Perhaps that also helped clinch me on the idea of writing a biography too. The fact that uh, you could bring in these uh, nice little stories that don't mean very much, but they add a bit of color to the overall picture. 
Yeah, that was fascinating. I do remember that story. And there's actually some really wonderful detail about his early life and his family and his mother and um, the kind of the ways that they supported his education as well, which is really striking given mm-hmm. the, you know, the conditions in which uh, he grew up. Right. Yeah, and I think, hopefully, like I pointed out in the book, I think that the fact that he did grow up in uh, perhaps not poverty, but certainly not uh, enormously comfortable circumstances, I think obviously that uh, uh, helped drive him. Uh, for example, once he got himself into the Naval Academy, that certainly helped uh, provide him with a certain degree of drive in that he felt that he was, uh, his family, he, he knew that his family had made sacrifices, and therefore it was, uh, I guess, on his shoulders to re- repay those sacrifices. Right. And part of that, so once we um, sort of are introduced to this really fascinating context in which he um, grew up, part of that um, family background and context and sort of destitute history is actually one of the things responsible for him to decide to enroll as a young um, naval officer. Is that correct? Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, in fact, he did receive advice. Obviously, he was a bright kid. Uh, obviously, he had uh, brains, mm-hmm. and in fact, somebody did advise him to uh, uh, try to get himself into Tokyo Imperial University. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did not follow up that advice and instead uh, entered the Naval Academy on the grounds that uh, study at uh, at university necessarily meant that he had to pull money from somewhere, whereas uh, Naval Academy meant that the uh, Japanese government would fund his education. So. Again, certainly his uh, family circumstances uh, perhaps to some extent helped uh, make that decision for him. Mm-hmm. Right. And the um, I, re- I remember very vividly the um, your description of the admissions process to get into this school in the first place. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, evidently it was quite tough, right? Right. Um, uh, a very, very strict and stringent uh, medical examination mm-hmm. uh, from naval surgeons followed by uh, a couple of days long examination process, which involved an enormous amount of preparation, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm certainly glad I'm not trying to sit that uh, exam because I know what would happen if I did. I, I'd be certainly failing the trigonometry and the, the physics and whatever else is in there. But uh, it covered an enormously broad range of topics uh, from science to mathematics through to the humanities, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, the the Obviously, there's an enormous deal of pressure in sitting those exams because these are a, a fiercely competitive process, but uh, perhaps the, the, the fact that the exam questions were so broad, uh, it also points to the, the curriculum at the Naval Academy itself, which also, particularly in the first and sec- uh, cadets' first and second years, the education was not a, a strictly military or slash naval education. It was very much a... Uh, almost kind of liberal arts in its approach to educating these young guys. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, you, you were um, writing in here that it incorporated not just math and science, but also um, sort of Chinese classics, yeah? Yes. And English as well, is that right? Yes. Um, Chinese classics, you see, come through uh, at least on occasion uh, reading, say, correspondence between these uh, uh, naval men I say as they uh, get older, you do see them on occasion. They will refer to uh, Confucius or Mencius or uh, whomever it might have been at the time. But uh, certainly, they, they do make reference back to uh, classical Chinese literature on occasion. Uh, in the as I say, in their correspondence with each other. So clearly, uh, uh, Chinese classics did play a role, uh, and perhaps that also 
is a reflective of um, Japanese society at the time, because, of course, I think the Chinese classics at that time did remain a reasonably important part, at least, of um, Japanese education. Uh, but, of course, the Naval Academy goes or went much further than that, and, as you mentioned, uh, did train the, the cadets in, for example, the English language. Right. Right. And it's and that actually brings us to um, the next phase of his career, actually, in the um, the third chapter uh, in which you talk about um, once he's graduated and he's done with his um, naval education, he actually starts being assigned to a number of uh, places in which he really kind of builds up this reputation um, as a um, really as an expert in U.S. Um, policy in particular. Um so this is a chapter that talks about his assignments to China, Tokyo, and Washington between 1912 and 1918. And we see here really major transformations in Nomura's career um, and his approach as a result of his experience in China and Tokyo and the U.S. at really a point um, at which it was really a critical historical juncture for each one of these places. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sort of that his time in China is interesting enough because uh, he his assignment to China coincided rather neatly with the, uh, the Nationalist Revolution in China, mm-hmm. and hence uh, he was uh, a, a first-hand witness to at least the immediate aftermath of the, uh, the Nationalist Revolution. Uh, that alone, I think, makes uh, his observations during his time in China quite interesting. So, uh, for example, uh, he and his uh, fellow sailors uh, certainly they walked away from China with the impression that the revolution hadn't really, um, it, it hadn't been an enormous success and that they, you certainly got the sense that they, they could see, perhaps not predicting all of its uh, particulars, but they could see that uh, warlords were going to play uh, at least some kind of a role in uh, China's uh, near or immediate future. And I think that's, that's interesting enough in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, his time at China came to an end and he uh, goes back to Tokyo and serves for a couple of years uh, more or less directly beneath uh, the Navy minister. Mm-hmm. And this this experience, these couple of years, um, they essentially start moving him away from being a sailor and they start making of him, uh, or at also making of him a naval bureaucrat. So he starts uh, looking at, or, or start, it opens his eyes to uh, policy making and decision making, as opposed to, um, I don't know, say navigation or whatever it is that sailors do out on the ocean. Uh, this was kind of interesting because it also, of course, coincided with the uh, outbreak of World War One. Mm-hmm. So he has a very, very close look at um, certainly the Navy minister and his reactions to uh, the outbreak of World War One, but also the Japanese government decision making machinery as a whole, uh, and. You certainly get the impression, he never came out quite in so many words and said it, but you sort of get the impression that he was not at all convinced that uh, Japan really needed to get itself involved in that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, in any case, we move on from there to his uh, time in Washington. So, reasonably soon after the outbreak of World War One, he was sent across to the United States, and this was very much a sign that his uh, he was being groomed for bigger and better things because that's where essentially the, the most promising young naval officers usually found themselves doing a tour of Washington. Uh, so certainly it was a sign that he was being groomed for bigger and better things. But also it's a, it's a fascinating period in his uh, career because he's in Washington for not quite, but roughly four years, uh, again, during the course of World War One, which uh, enables him to uh, 
to to view the United States, particularly once it does enter the war, he, he sees this massive mobilization uh, and the, the U.S. response to the war, which obviously, uh, in the end, meant the uh, meant German surrender. And so he got a real, a very, very close view of, uh, of American strength in a period of total war, which shaped his overall worldview and certainly shaped his ideas regarding, say, Japanese-American relations. Right. And this is also, um, I mean, this really seems like the period where... Um, it, the course of the rest of his career in some sense is uh, is kind of shaped, or if not shaped, then the seed is planted because this is really the period that starts making him an authority on the U.S., right, and, and gives him the sense that the U.S. is an emerging world leader. As you most, certainly, yeah. most certainly. This, this really implants in his mind the idea that uh, the United States is perfectly equipped uh, for total warfare mm-hmm. and that it's simply not possible certainly for Japan, to ever defeat the United States in war. So uh, from his viewpoint, it made uh, a whole lot of sense to uh, for Japan to seek anything but war with the United States. So clearly that, uh, that resonates throughout his uh, remaining naval career and then, of course, on into uh, his time as foreign minister, ambassador, etc., that's right. And and what I really love about this aspect of the book um, that really becomes clear after you sort of work through it um, is that you're really setting um, the architecture here to take us through the events and the decisions and the processes that lead a person to, or that perhaps might explain how a person makes the decisions that, or comes to understand things um, the way they do and make the kinds of decisions that they do later in life, that without this background, it's uh, it's very difficult to understand that. And I really loved that way of sort of taking us through this process that helps his, um, that helps him or taking us through the process of him making sense of the world around him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perhaps that's the beauty of biography. If we go, if we think back to that question you asked before about why did I uh, choose biography? I, I think what you just said there, perhaps, uh, uh, perhaps it helps sum up perhaps better than I could, uh, why I ended up choosing biography as a uh, means of writing this uh, or, or approaching this particular subject. Well, I think it works beautifully. And um, so to kind of continue on in that, to sort of to see how this uh, sort of sense-making develops, we you take us from his point um, where he's actually learning about and has his first experience in the U.S., to a point where he's actually in the next chapter taking this experience and coming back and um, sort of using it to inform his opinion about naval limitation, right, mm-hmm. and about um, the sort of the Japanese Navy and policies therein. Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, so the the, the basic framework that we're working with in here is the, uh, as you suggest, naval limitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the three major naval powers being United States, Britain, and Japan through the 20s uh, did, uh, and, and indeed through the early 30s, agreed to uh, limit the size of their navies. Uh, and certainly, uh, and this this very much, this these agreements on naval limitation split the Japanese Navy very, very, um, or it caused very, very great divides within the Japanese Navy. So essentially, sailors would either find themselves agreeing with naval limitation or very strongly against naval limitation. And perhaps that's not only within the Japanese Navy. I think to a certain extent, at least, it also existed within uh, the U.S. and British navies as well. But um, certainly the, the cleavage in the, the Japanese Navy was very, very deep, and the divide was um, 
well, there was really no coming across that divide. And so he puts himself very firmly on the side of uh, those officers in firm agreement with naval limitation. Uh, and to sum up his position, I think it's easiest to say that naval limitation essentially meant that Japan could not declare war or fight a war, open war against the United States in the confident expectation of victory. It basically removed war as an option for the Japanese, uh, for Japanese policymakers. And at exactly the same time, it, it did exactly the same thing for the United States. So the U.S. could not open war against Japan in the confident expectation of victory. So essentially what it's done is it's, it's more or less removed war as an option for either the Japanese or the U.S. governments. And from his position, from his and remembering that his time in America during World War One has uh, painted this picture of the United States as just uh, incomparably powerful, uh, this, these naval limitations agreements make perfect sense to him. And so he he uh, he finds himself in very very firm agreement with these agreements. Uh, excuse me, that sounded a bit confusing. He finds himself in very firm agreement with these uh, naval limitation treaties. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately for him, perhaps, uh, and uh, certainly unfortunately for the Japanese Navy and the Japanese na- nation, it puts him very much at odds with mainstream thinking within the Japanese Navy, which was so firmly against naval limitation. Uh, and so essentially his naval career, as he moves into uh, into its highest ranks, so as he becomes vice admiral, admiral, etc., where right through his uh, younger career, he's been groomed for, for higher positions. So Navy minister, chief of the general staff, he never actually hits those lofty heights mm-hmm. essentially because he is very much at odds with uh, majority opinion within the Japanese Navy. Mm-hmm. That's right. And all of this is also happening um, for those of us who are interested in Chinese history, too. This is really fascinating because this is happening against the backdrop of um, the Shanghai incident or the January 28th incident um, mm-hmm. in Chinese historiography, which is essentially the opening stage of the Second uh, Sino-Japanese War, right? So, uh, Or that kind of leads us to, or sort of leads the us to... Shanghai incident comes on on the heels of the Manchurian incident of uh-huh. 1931. So we have Shanghai uh, breaks out in early 32. Mm-hmm. Um, the Shanghai incident has not received quite as much coverage from historians or from academics as has, say, Manchuria, or right. for that matter, the, uh, the Sino-Japanese War mm-hmm. back uh, in 37. Mm-hmm. But it's, a, it's an interesting little episode because the... The problems that broke out in Shanghai were of much, much greater interest and concern to, for example, the United States and Great Britain than, for example, the Manchurian incident had been. Because essentially Manchuria, as I'm sure you're aware, had been basically uh, Japanese turf for roughly 25, 30 years anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the Americans and the Brits didn't really have much in the way of interests up in that uh, northern part of China anyway. But when things start to happen in Shanghai, that brings Japanese-Chinese hostilities very, very close to um, the basically the center of British and American interests in the Far East. So Shanghai interest, the Shanghai incident is an interesting one because it, it brings Sino-Japanese relations and obviously very quickly deteriorating Sino-Japanese relations into a much, much bigger context, uh, namely uh, that of, uh, say, Anglo-American uh, policies in the region as well. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Um, this is also, incidentally, the chapter where he loses an eye. Is that Indeed. I, right? Indeed. So, so he, uh, he commands the forces, uh, which just, uh, which are, whose job it is to, uh, bring the Shanghai incident to a close. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and as commander of those uh, forces, he uses, a, a, as I, I hopefully have tried to put in the book, he, he uses a very, very adroit mix of diplomacy plus force. Mm-hmm. So force obviously directed against uh, the Chinese uh, 19th Route Army. Uh, diplomacy very much directed at, uh, uh, in particular, uh, the Brit- Britain's Royal Navy, uh, and in fact their uh, highest ranking uh, officer in Shanghai at the time. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the fighting of uh, in Shanghai, he indeed loses an eye, uh, as, and at the same time, uh, a Japanese diplomat loses a leg, uh, and in fact, one of the Japanese generals, he in fact died as a result of this. Now, it just so happens, I was talking with someone recently who uh, uh, has spent much time in Korea, in South Korea, and he was telling me that he had just been in a, uh, uh, on a tour of uh, Korea's parliament and at the, uh, the kind of the bookstore, the souvenir shop, uh, just at parliament, in fact, there is a statue of the guy, the Korean nationalist who threw the bomb, which uh, caused, amongst other things, my admiral to lose his eye in 32. Okay. Sure, you get the uh, the stat- a little stat. You can buy a little statues of the guy who threw the bomb, which uh, <laughs> I kind of wish this friend of mine had bought it for me. But nonetheless, wow, <laughs> wow. Um, this is so. This is so. So much is happening now to sort of get the story going. And as he's, um, we really see the emergence here of um, really the differences that he's developing with certain um, areas of the Japanese naval establishment, right? Which is a, a kind of a significant change. Um, into the next chapter, then we see him retiring from the Navy's active list, right? Mm-hmm. But and becoming a foreign minister. In a period when um, this is a really crucial period for modern Japanese history, right? Because Japan is involved in this stage either in tension or all-out war with the Soviet Union, with China, um, with the U.S., and is starting to develop a relationship with Nazi Germany, right? So can you talk um, for us a little bit about that larger context? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he emerges in this period as uh, enormously critical of the Japanese army because, as you say, uh, obviously the army is fighting in China and it's also – fighting the Soviets up along the uh, Manchurian-Siberian border. So he emerges as uh, very, very critical of the army, as he puts it, for, um, uh, for its, the seeming intent with which it's driving Japan to exhaustion. So in that sense, we uh, obviously this guy is not uh, uh, any kind of rabid militarist. We can certainly make that claim. Uh, but he's also he also picks an enormous fight within uh, once he becomes foreign minister, he or finds himself embroiled in an enormous fight with uh, all the diplomats, or not all, but many of the diplomats within the foreign ministry, mm-hmm. essentially because he is not pro-German slash pro-Italian. He is at least perceived as being uh, pro-Western, certainly pro-US, uh, and this causes consternation amongst uh, many, certainly the younger diplomats who, uh, for better or for worse, uh, seem to believe in uh, German invincibility Mm-hmm. Um, so, once again, his time as foreign minister, he, he, he's a man who's kind of swimming against the tide, which is more or less what happens in the, uh, the say, the last 10, 15 years of his uh, naval career. Same thing is repeating itself, this idea that he is very much swimming against the tide, which, again, I think makes him a, an intensely interesting character because he's, he gives us a, a sense of um, paths that remained open to Japan. They might not have been easy paths. They were certainly difficult paths, but he gives us a sense of paths that did remain open in this critical period. Um, and, of course, 
it's not particularly helpful to sit here and play with uh, what if type questions, the counterfactual questions. But nonetheless, you do. Sometimes you can't help but wonder what if uh, some of his ideas did not uh, gain a little bit more currency within Japan's ruling circles at this time. Mm-hmm. Well, th- that's that's right. And he, at least for me, reading through this chapter, um, he repeatedly emerges from this section of the book as a kind of voice of reason. Right. I mean, it's very. He's a very sympathetic character, and he's consistently making um, what are at the time taken to be very controversial suggestions about how Japan should be handling the situation in China and handling um, its relationships with Germany, especially in the context of global politics on the eve of World War Two. Right. He's just. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. So did, did you feel yourself in this, um, in the course of writing uh, this life story? Well, it's much more than a life story, but writing through the life um, of this, um, of this really fascinating person, did you find your yourself uh, changing your opinion of him or of his suggestions of sort of the way you were reading um, his part of this story as you worked through his life? Um, I, I had to be very careful because, yeah. to be perfectly honest, I, the more I read about him, the more I researched him, the more I wrote about him, to be perfectly honest, the more I found myself liking him. Yeah. Uh, and the more, and as you say, the more good sense and more common sense that I was seeing in everything that he said and did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, that, that set off a, a kind of a little alarm bell in the back of my mind, which, uh, because essentially I had to be careful that I was not becoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, just slavishly sympathetic to his views as opposed to um, mm-hmm. obviously empathetic but nonetheless critical of his views. Uh, I'm not sure if I quite got the balance right, but certainly my views of him did change. Uh, they went from being one of um, of admiration to one of outright admiration because I think he, more often than not, he got things right, which you can't say that about too many Japanese policymakers in this period. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a delicate balance that any of us who work on um, projects that follow the the life or the trajectory of a single or you know a handful of people find ourselves in, right? I mean, I think that's the sort of you, you tend to work on um, people or projects that speak to you. Of course, for a lot of, of us, mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. So, um, again, it, it is a, a delicate balancing act, isn't it, between um, as I said before, this idea of empathy and sympathy. It, it's a, it is a very difficult difficult balancing act. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and speaking of um, Nomura as a, a sympathetic character, we come to the next stage now of his career in which he's got an ambassadorial appointment mm-hmm. right to Washington. Um, he's told by one of his superiors, um, he, he, he's asked to go to Washington a number of times, and this is in 1940 and 1941. Um, and he's asked to go, um, and the, the one quote that really stood out for me here um, is that one of his superiors tells him, besides your good self, there's no one who can talk with President Roosevelt over drinks. So <laughs> so he's sent to, uh, he's asked to go and talk with Pre- President Roosevelt. And finally, um, he goes um, and he um, he acts in an ambassadorial capacity. Um, can you talk a little bit for us about that time he spent in Washington? Well, I, I kind of like that chapter on the uh, appointment, his appointment as ambassador, because um, actually this this particular time frame, which is, is roughly, uh, say, the second half of 1940, nobody's really done anything at all on that before. And in fact, um, Michael Barnhart, who is at uh, State University of New York in Stony Brook, he on any number of occasions has told me, you've really got to take a good look at his uh, appointment as ambassador. 
So I do feel thankful to him for um, pushing me down that track because it opened up a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful little chapter in his life, uh, which it demonstrated just how how difficult his ambassadorial mission would be, and it also demonstrates his understanding of how difficult his ambassadorial mission would be, which most previous or most of the existing literature simply does not address in any way or form. There, there seems to be, at least certainly among Western historians, there's a sense that uh, he arrived as ambassador in a kind of, he was naive and he didn't really know what he was doing and he, uh, he was quite laid back, he was relaxed about the whole thing, he didn't, uh, he didn't act on anything for quite some weeks after arriving there. And so the, the, the overriding impression you get from the existing literature is that he, he was very relaxed and, and simply he blew it basically in those first couple of weeks because he, he really didn't get things moving. And he blew it precisely because he, he just didn't realize how much or how, how strained Japanese US relations really were. Uh, and I think if nothing else, that chapter hopefully suggests that he, uh, he had a very, very deep understanding of just how much trouble uh, Japanese-U.S. relations were in at this point in time. So I kind of like that chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then moving on into his time as ambassador, uh, the, there are three chapters devoted to his time as ambassador. So obviously the, that mission, that ambassadorial mission, gets uh, uh, much more attention, much more detailed attention than do any than does anything else in his uh, life. Mm-hmm. Certainly the, the first chapter looks at his uh, his doings within the framework in particular of the so-called draft understanding, which right. was, for, for want of a better way of putting this, it was a, uh, a, an effort at peace in the Pacific, Japanese-US peace. Mm-hmm. And again, if you look at the existing literature, uh, it is enormously critical, both uh, Western and Japanese literature is enormously critical of his actions in this time, uh, in particular of his actions uh, as he is dealing with this draft understanding. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the existing literature will tell us that uh, he he went ahead and basically created this draft understanding or, or worked with this draft un- understanding without ever once telling anybody back in Tokyo what he was doing. So essentially, he's a, an ambassador out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we go back to a question you asked earlier about his uh, personal papers, these little nuggets of information that uh, pop up in his personal papers, uh, this is clearly one of those uh, nuggets because this is where or, or papers there certainly showed us that uh, he was not acting of his own volition, that he was very much uh, acting uh, on the basis of a pipeline he had back to the Japanese Navy in Tokyo. So I think... That chapter is kind of fun because, or it was kind of fun to write because it, uh, essentially, I, I'm not sure if this is a, a good way of putting it, but sometimes I had this picture in my head of myself taking an existing uh, portrait, say, of the Japanese-U.S. negotiations and this draft understanding, this effort at peace in the Pacific, and I was taking this portrait and basically uh, going over it with a whole bunch of new paints and and quite significantly re redrawing this portrait and making it look somewhat quite different to what it did in the first place. Right. For, as a reader, um, coming at this and really coming at this set of issues, um, in, in a new way for the first time, I think, 
um, you're, you're actually taking the portrait and you're taking it from two dimensions to three as well. Um, because you really get a sense of, especially in this chapter that chapter six that you mentioned, um, liking quite a bit. I like that quite a bit too. And what, one of the things I loved is that you really do bring out a sense of, um, how equivocal Nomura was, you know, how thoughtful he was about taking up this position and how, um, this sort of sense of these conflicting senses of duty to these different components of his life and these different um, sort of larger uh, entities that he felt sort of duty-bound to uh, were really battling it out in his decisions to do this. And and I so I really think that comes out really well. Well, sad thing for him and for, of course, the Japanese nation as a whole was the fact that many of these institutions or in, ca- in some cases individuals to whom he felt some kind of responsibility, they they treated him as a, a basically as a plaything or as a tool, which is a little bit sad, but uh, uh, I guess such is life. Mm-hmm. Right. And we move to um, after, you know, we have this chapter where um, he, you really get a sense of the, um, really the, the tension um, that he's struggling with. He really seems to end um, in the chapter on the draft understanding uh, with a feeling that's quite optimistic, right? I mean, we, I, I sort of got the sense that he's quite optimistic about the possibilities for reaching some kind of agreement at the end. Um, but then mm-hmm. that, that quite changes in the next chapter, a mission gone awry, May mm-hmm. through October, 1941. Um, so can you talk a, um, a little bit about that change and the transition to um, this uh, really critical turning point for this story? Mm-hmm. Um, well, this, the chapter you mentioned deals essentially with uh, the period, let's say mid-1941. <laughs> and mid-1941 is witness to a, a, a monstrous turning point in World War II, and that, of course, was uh, Hitler's decision to invade the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. The Japanese response to the invasion of the Soviet Union was, of course, to uh, send uh, forces into Southeast Asia, at which point his ambassadorial mission is gone. It's shot to pieces because the Americans have made it perfectly clear on any number of occasions that uh, a forceful advance into Southeast Asia and peaceful negotiations between Japan and the United States were were simply incompatible. These two did not go hand in hand. and so what we see, him, he, he's essentially fighting a rearguard action through um, certainly, say, in late June through July, he is fighting a, a very strong rearguard action in that he's he's basically trying to tell anyone who would listen that uh, they are destroying any hope of peace in the Pacific. Uh, in the meantime, though, what is happening back in Tokyo, there is a there's a, a sense of crisis within the Japanese Navy because the Japanese Navy, and this is another point in the book that I actually kind of like quite a bit because I'm not sure too many other people have bothered uh, saying very much about this particular, uh, or about this, and this being uh, the Japanese Navy's reaction to Hitler's decision to invade the Soviet Union. And essentially, the as I see it, the Japanese Navy became fearful that the Japanese Army would argue for a Japanese advance into Siberia. So in in essence, that the Japanese army should replicate what the Germans were doing in Europe and uh, and hit the Soviets uh, essentially from both sides and knock the Soviets out of World War II. Now, for the Japanese Navy, this is a horror show because it, um, it basically means that the Japanese army is going to do everything and that in the process it will take all of the material and all of the budget, which means the Japanese Navy will get nothing 
Mm-hmm. At the same time, the U.S. Navy is just expanding exponentially, so it means that the Japanese Navy is going to basically just fall by the wayside. And so it feels that the leaders in the Japanese Navy, and so, in fact, basically all Japanese naval officers feel this desperate need to to somehow prevent the army from from arguing for an advance into Siberia. And the only argument anyone comes up with is the idea of an advance into Southeast Asia instead. Which is a curious alternative because, of course, it basically ensured war with the United States. And so he's not – from Washington, Ambassador Nomina is not 100% certain of what's going on back in Tokyo. He's not sure what all the arguments are, but he does know that the, this advance into Southeast Asia is on, that it's that, they, that Tokyo has reached this decision. So he is fighting this rearguard action and saying, well, what are you doing? You're destroying any hope of peace in the Pacific, and you are, in fact, bringing on war with the United States, which – Again, if we go back to his uh, core beliefs, Japan could not possibly win. So they were um, the, the very people who had pleaded with him to go to the United States in an effort at peace in the Pacific were, in fact, destroying his ambassadorial mission with the decision to move into Southeast Asia. I mean, that's a really fascinating part of this story. And in the course of this, um, it becomes evident in the course of this chapter that uh, during his uh, struggle with this process, he actually uh, makes some missteps um, as an ambassador, right? At, at moments, he really oversteps or seems to overstep his authority as ambassador, at least in the perception of um, the people looking on. Can you talk a little bit about that? He, he Clearly, he makes mistakes. Um, he does things that an ambassador should not do. There's no doubt about that. Um, to give you one very quick example, he he suggested in one conversation with uh, U.S. Secretary of State Hull, Cordell Hull, that uh, Japanese forces would leave China within two years of uh, Sino-Japanese peace. Uh, this that, That's vastly overstepping his ambassadorial authority, and he clearly should not have done it. Um, and so... And that, that's not the only mistake he makes. He does make a few others, uh, none of which are becoming of an ambassador, uh, certainly none of which you would expect uh, an ambassador to make. Um, my take on this is a little bit different to the existing literature. The existing literature uses uh, or points to these uh, uh, various missteps, again, as evidence that he simply didn't know what he was doing. He, he was not a diplomat. He was, in fact, a naval officer, and therefore... These missteps, were, this clumsiness was, was a product of the fact that he's not a professional diplomat and uh, perhaps also indicative of the fact that he should not have been there, that he, because he didn't know what he was doing, he was actually making things worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I take exception with that. I think it's difficult to see how his actions as ambassador could make things worse than they were when his own government is actively reaching decisions that really could only possibly result in war with the United States. I, I just, for mine, I just cannot see that these missteps he made were quite as crucial as perhaps some other people have suggested in the past. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think um, what, what, it, what at least seems to be clear in this chapter from the perspective of a reader is even though he does um, make decisions that seem in retrospect to have been 
perhaps mistakes, right? I mean, he publicizes mm. things, mistakes. right? Mm. Like he, he publicizes things that were supposed to be kept secret. He kind of mm. ignores instructions from his superiors. He chooses not to send documents sort of to both at both sides of the negotiations that he was uh, meant to mediate. Um, these come across not as sort of evidence of clumsiness, but rather kind of uh, perhaps um, ill conceived decisions, but conscious decisions nonetheless that were made on the basis of, you know, sort of reasoned uh, opinion, right? And pressure to boot, I think. I think uh, the pressure of the situation is beginning to tell on this guy. And I, one little anecdote that uh, popped up, and I, I'm sure I incorporated it in here. Uh, he, one night in July, mid July, I think it was, he uh, went around and woke up uh, the naval attache to the uh, embassy in Washington at, at midnight or 1 a.m. in the morning and actually basically opened up and said, look, I, I can't believe what's happening here. I've accepted this ambassadorial mission because these uh, these men have pleaded with me to do this, and now they've turned around and basically guaranteed that Japan will go to war with the United States, which seemingly contradicts all of the promises that they'd given him before he left for Washington in the first place. So I, I think he, he's a man at wit's end, I think, is perhaps the, uh, the easiest way to think about this. Mm-hmm. That's right. And he does really emerge from this chapter of the book as a very sympathetic character. I mean, despite all of these missteps and despite all these mistakes, um, it, he does t- still seem very sympathetic. Well, he's making mistakes, but he's getting it right. Yeah. So right. He's, he's telling his uh, colleagues in Tokyo, he's saying, if you do this, then the Americans will respond by doing this. And if you do this, the Americans will respond by doing this. And the funny thing is, everything that he was reporting back home, he got it right. But the problem was that no one was listening to him. Mm-hmm. So again, I would um, argue that these these mistakes that he made, obvious mistakes that he made, uh, obviously that they they do need to receive their attention, but they should also be seen within a much broader context. For example, the context a context being all of this reporting that he's sending back home and saying, "Well, you're sending us to war with the United States, a war we cannot win," and nobody's paying any attention to this, which I find curious. Right. Right. And and this actually brings us to um, the penultimate chapter of the book, right? This The next phase of this. Um, and this chapter is, in many ways for me, um, about the internal struggle of an ambassador who really feels himself at odds with his own government, right? Um, there's, again, a series of what seemed at the time, must, must have seemed at the time to be very reasonable decisions um, that ultimately and quite quickly end in miscommunication um, and ultimately the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor um, at the end of the day. Um, can you talk about this, which is in many ways a kind of um, climax or coming to a head of the story of the book? I think uh, to, to bring everybody up to speed, he has uh, this ambassador has met with um, uh, stinging criticism from basically all quarters because, of course, he never got the last note into the State Department uh, in time. Uh, in other words, Japanese forces attacked Pearl Harbor before he delivered the last note. And in in not delivering the last note on time. Essentially, he was not meeting the instructions he was getting from the foreign minister. So the foreign minister says, get the last note into the State Department by one o'clock. He doesn't get it in there until quarter past two. So he has met with stinging criticism, again, for being too laid back and not uh, not getting things moving like he should have done, which, again, the existing literature points to as further evidence of his uh, uh, his inabilities and his shortcomings as ambassador. Uh, I would argue otherwise, because, and I think I have argued otherwise, because what we're seeing here, uh, 
say, from late November up until the Pearl Harbor attack of uh, December 7, he continually warns his government against any further advances into Southeast Asia. Uh, in particular, he was thinking Thailand. Uh, and he was warning them against any further advances into Southeast Asia because, as he saw it, this would, uh, there were, this would set in chain a number of events which would ultimately end up in a Japanese-American war, which, again, Japan could not possibly win. So he was saying, okay, you're, I'm, I'm guessing that you're planning to move into Southeast Asia, to which the Americans will respond by sending forces into the Dutch East Indies, which today we call Indonesia. Uh, we will then have to take the Dutch East Indies because that's the only place Japan can get oil from, uh, and this will necessarily uh, bring on a clash with American forces, and obviously war will ensue. And so he's continuously, as I say, from, say, late November on, uh, repeatedly warning his government against or about precisely this scenario. And nobody, not the foreign minister, not the navy minister, not the navy chief of staff, none of them bother writing back to him and saying, no, well, that's not what we're thinking. They just, uh, they let him continue mm -hmm. thinking about a, a, this scenario that simply did not exist. So when he gets these instructions to deliver this last note by uh, strictly 1 p.m., and as the this last note is uh, being prepared within uh, the Washington Embassy, and he's looking over this last note, and nowhere in the last note does it actually contain any words or the wording that you would normally expect of a declaration of war. Um, so he's looking at it, and again, it's simply the fact that it does not declare war between Japan and the United States for him reinforces the idea that Japanese forces are about to move into Southeast Asia. So he thinks as things slow down and things are not going quite as quickly not quickly enough to allow him to deliver the last note by 1 p.m. He thinks, well, I deliver it half an hour, an hour late, an hour and a quarter late. It, uh, in the end, it means that some Japanese forces will move somewhere in Southeast Asia before I get that last note to the State Department, so it's not such a big deal. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when he goes into the State Department to uh, hand the, the last note in, uh, Secretary of State Cordell Hull is just steaming because, of course, Hull knows that the attack is taking place, and he assumes understandably, that uh, the ambassador has played him for a fool. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's steaming, and he lets uh, the ambassador have it. And in fact, calls him a, uh, a scoundrel and a pissant, which I kind of like that word. Right? <laughs> I've never been able to use it myself. I've, I've always been looking for an occasion to use it. But uh, anyways, maybe I'll find it one day. Uh, so he gets marched out of the office, at, w at which point he still doesn't know that Japanese forces have hit Pearl Harbor. Right. And, sort of, and ultimately, um, sort of after this really amazing turn of events or in turn of uh, happenstance or sort of miscommunication, um, Nomura is actually placed in internment for about six months, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. a, a, a cushy internment, right? Relatively. Indeed, indeed. He's treated rather well, really. Right. They're in a hotel, is that right? I remember. Yes, uh, yes, in a rather luxurious hotel. Uh, which stands in stark contrast to what's happening to the American ambassador in Tokyo, who, uh, or the embassy staff, the American embassy staff in Tokyo, who basically are just confined to the American embassy itself, which is not quite as comfortable as uh, what the Japanese staff is getting uh, in the U.S. Right, and uh, he, I think I, uh, as I remember, he actually mentions that uh, the Japanese that are being kept in internment in this hotel are living almost too well that they're going to be so used to getting good food and being such taken care of, so well taken care of that when they return mm. home, it's actually going to be quite a shock to not be in internment indeed. anymore. Indeed, he, he warned them against this, right? Which, right. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It uh, again, it stands in very stark contrast to what's happening to uh, uh, the American embassy staff over in Tokyo. That's right. Well, at, so this is the penultimate chapter that leads us to um, the final chapter of the book, mm-hmm. right? And this is the chapter that looks at Nomura as a what you call a cold warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, in a period when Japan is under occupation. Um, and can you, as a way of sort of uh, bringing this, uh, his life story to its, uh, to its close, can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that um, period in his life? Okay. He, um, as you say, Japan falls under occupation after it uh, surrenders in World War II. Mm-hmm. And throughout this occupation, he, draws upon a very, very broad array of uh, U.S. contacts, mostly in the U.S. Navy, but not solely from within the U.S. Navy, uh, to impress or in in some effort at gaining some traction for the idea of Japanese-U.S. friendship, essentially is what he's looking for. Uh, for the first, say, 18 months or so of the occupation, he doesn't get a lot of traction at all. There's not a lot. Uh, he gets sympathy from some of his old friends, but that's about the best he gets. Uh, of course, once the, the Cold War, uh, or once the U.S. finds itself in a Cold War with the Soviet Union, uh, American policies toward occupied Japan change, uh, and America starts seeing Japan as a potential ally in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. So at this point, his thinking, I'm not going to be so brash as to say his thinking influenced U.S. policymakers, because I don't think it did, but certainly there are some very, very strong parallels between what he's saying and what we're seeing uh, various policymakers in Washington argue. And just to offer one uh, very brief example here, by 1949, obviously, uh, at which time uh, Mao Zedong's communists uh, have take, or take control of uh, mainland China, uh, Nomura begins arguing that the Americans really need to establish a defensive line which runs uh, through Japan, down through Okinawa, through Taiwan, through the Philippines. So he's talking about an offshore uh, defensive line. And it just so happens that almost to the day, the Joint Chiefs and staff in Washington also happen to be talking about the offshore island chain, which ran exactly along precisely the same route that he he himself had identified, obviously independently of the uh, Joint Chiefs. But uh, uh, my point here being that he had no real way of knowing, for example, this is what the uh, Joint Chiefs are talking about, but he could certainly guess. And again, if, when he guesses, when he, he, uh, when he does make these guesses and he makes these forecasts, just as was the case during his time as ambassador, he usually gets them pretty much right, uh, which it puts him in a very nice position when the Americans start looking for Japanese rearmament. The fact that he at least as well as any other person in Japan, he, he, he is able to read American thinking and America, particularly American strategic thinking, and he, he's very adept at trying to find a place for Japan within that uh, American strategic mindset. So it does mean that he's rather well placed uh, to, when it comes time for the Americans to push Japan for rearmament, so this is late in the occupation, say in 1950-51, he is rather well placed uh, to talk to these uh, men about uh, precisely that, in particular about Japanese uh, maritime rearmament. So he plays uh, at least something of a role in the uh, creation of the uh, Japan's maritime self-defense forces. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Thank you so much. Um, is there anything about the book that we didn't talk about, but that you'd like to have a chance to point out for listeners who might not yet have had the opportunity to read it? No, no. I think uh, let's let them find out for themselves. <laughs> Sounds great. So tell it before we let you go. Um, and thank you so much for being so generous with your time and, and sharing this with us today. What's next for you? What's next on the slate? What are you working on now? Well, I'm toying around with a few things. Uh, in fact, one thing I'm looking at is uh, uh, Australia's uh, minister to Washington during 1941 in the lead-up to the Pearl Harbor attack. Australia did not have an ambassador. Uh, Australia was not at that point an independent nation. It was a uh, dominion within the British Empire. Right? So, but for all intents and purposes, he was the ambassador. And so I'm looking at him, and actually he's quite a fascinating figure too, and he's uh, uh, playing around with him is allowing me to, to have a fresh look at uh, uh, Washington in the lead-up to uh, the Pearl Harbor attack. So that's one thing I'm looking at. Uh, another thing I'm uh, playing with is a, uh, a, a documentary history of the Japanese Navy on the eve of Pearl Harbor. So um, perhaps those two examples will suffice, but it shows that uh, I, I can't seem to get away from Pearl Harbor, right? <laughs> well, it seems like a really rich subject, so perhaps you don't need to. Right? Maybe I'm just uh, <laughs> kicking a dead horse. I don't know. We'll wait and see. <laughs> okay. Well, Peter, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. This book is completely fascinating, and I think it's fascinating um, not just for scholars or students or um, aficionados of Japanese history or sort of transnational modern history, um, but also for people interested in um, having a really fascinating methodological case study of how to use, how to basically tell a world history through um, the life and the sort of successive reasoning processes of a very interesting individual. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us for this hour. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies.